0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 25th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief and Lindsay Baden, deputy editor. Eric and Lindsay, I attended a lecture last week on the mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. And one of the first questions the speaker was asked was why does immunity wane and can we make longer lasting vaccines? Waning immunity and what should be done about it has evoked considerable discussion recently And it's the topic of a study we published today. But before we get into that study, can you help our listeners think through just what's meant by waning?
1: Steve, I suspect that different people mean different things when they discuss waning. The simplest definition is probably the decline in the measured immune response over time. We know that antibody titers fall gradually, and that's true for any vaccine. But it might be much more striking in illness like COVID-19, where high titers of antibody are associated with higher degrees of protection. It's also true for cell-mediated immunity, as various measures of T cell function decline over time. However, in the case of T cells, we know less about how well these predict protection. But I suspect that most people think about waning as a decreased ability of vaccines to protect against the virus. Now it gets complicated. For COVID-19, there are two very distinct endpoints. One is symptomatic infection. We know that vaccines did a great job of protecting against infection when they were first introduced. However, over time, vaccination has proved to be far less protective. But there's a second outcome that might be even more important, how well vaccination protects against severe disease and death. Here, vaccines have done better with much less of a decline in protection. Finally, of course, all studies of waning are being performed against the background of a changing landscape of viral strains and substrains. So, it can be quite difficult to tease out how much of failure is due to changes in the virus and
2: how much due to loss of immune protection. So, Eric, I think you raise a very important point that is worth some attention. When we say waning, I think most people care about clinical illness. That's what you implied. And that is how we think about protection. I'm protected from COVID because I don't get sick. But you're absolutely correct. There really is a grayscale of different implications of waning, and what that clinical protection is. And severe illness is the most important, and probably the key issue that we want to protect against. But moderate illness, mild illness, where you have a sniffle, asymptomatic acquisition, even nasal acquisition and transmission are all things that we want to protect against. But what's really important and what we care about is moderate to severe illness. And I think that has gotten jumbled a bit in how we think about different treatments that work and vaccines and other kinds of interventions. When we look at what works and what doesn't, we don't always think about what we mean by it works. And the flip side of that, what do we mean by the efficacy is waning. The other side that you commented on, Eric, as well, is just the immune response. And that gets a lot of attention because we're able to measure immune responses, particularly in the blood antibodies and whether or not individuals have titers that we think are likely to be protective. We have to remember that what we're measuring, we're measuring out of convenience, typically the peripheral compartment the blood, and what kinds of assays are easy to do, often antibodies. You know, cellular assays are more difficult to do. But ultimately, we're just assessing what's circulating in the blood. I don't think we're really getting at what the immunity is that someone has from prior vaccination or infection, where that immunity may be in resident memory cells, which may not be as easily detected in the peripheral compartment. So we have to be very careful how we think about waning and therefore loss of efficacy, Because there are a lot of different meanings here.
1: All good points, Lindsay. And I think that we were a bit lucky at the beginning and got a bit spoiled by the fact that the initial vaccination provided such strong protection against infection and, of course, on subsequent disease. Most of our vaccines against respiratory illnesses don't work as well. Influenza would be a good example. And now it appears, retrospectively, that at least for antibody, you need extremely high titers to prevent infection. Those are the kinds of titers you obtain very shortly after vaccination or after boosting, but those don't last very long. There are other diseases, I think of malaria in particular, where you need really, really high titers of antibody for protection. And so this is not so unusual, but you don't need very high titers of antibody to protect against severe disease fairly effectively. And that may be because of the antibody, or it may be because of some of these cell-mediated immune responses. But you're right. I think that the general public had become comfortable with the idea that they were safe from ever getting infection because of the initial success of the vaccines, and that has not borne out. It's still conceivable that new vaccine approaches will provide better protection against infection, but we haven't seen the studies of those yet, and so it's hard to guess what's going to happen.
2: So, Eric, I think we need to be careful because I'm not convinced that the goal of vaccination is to eradicate SARS-CoV-2, to prevent infection completely. I think that we collectively have to think carefully about what we want from vaccination. And I would argue what we want is to prevent people from getting severely ill, needing to be hospitalized. And one step further is to prevent illness that is disruptive to their lives. But I don't know that we're going to be able to stop infection. That's a very high bar.
0: There's another factor, especially after the initial Omicron wave, the number of people who've been infected has increased dramatically. So how does that contribute to immunity?
1: Steve, you're asking about how much infection itself adds to immunity in someone who has or has not been vaccinated in the past. So it's not so simple. People were infected at different times and with different strains. So in addition, they had different clinical severities of disease and that might affect immunity. So this is another very variable variable.
2: So Eric and Steve, to complicate it further, the sequence and the timing of events matter. Vaccination followed by infection, infection followed by vaccination, multiple infections, multiple vaccinations interspersed with each other with different variants spread out over different amounts of time. All of these factors can impact the nature of the immune response elicited. So it just gets more complicated as we try to understand background immunity from these myriad of hybrid immunity events.
0: So let's get back to the study we published today, which wades into the complexity that you're talking about. What did the investigators do and what did we learn?
1: This group of researchers used Ministry of Health data from Israel, a country with high rates of vaccination and very good health records. In this retrospective study, they looked at the rate of infection for various groups, those who were and were not vaccinated and those who had been previously infected. They also analyzed different time periods since infection. So as is probably clear from the description that I just gave, there are a lot of moving parts and therefore a lot of different groups with different outcomes. But I guess we can look at these data simplistically. The absolute benefit of prior infection alone was better than vaccination alone, but not as good as both together. And protection waned over time whether induced by vaccination or infection. It's important to remember too that this study was conducted when Delta was the dominant variant. We know that both prior infection and vaccination are not as effective at preventing infection due to the Omicron variant or the many subvariants that are currently circulating. Still, it seems likely that the relative efficacy of each protective measure will be similar, even if the absolute numbers are different.
2: So Eric and Steve, I look at this simply. The first immunity event is best through vaccination. The reason being, if it's through natural infection, there is the risk for severe illness. So though we can alter the immune profile depending on the sequence of immunity-inducing events, the risk of natural infection is not trivial. Therefore, having a vaccination-induced immunity followed by other types of immune-inducing events can build on each other to bring out stronger immune responses. But we should not forget how serious COVID can be in the non-immune individual.
1: Lindsay, that's a point that's always worth reemphasizing. Among all the data that we're seeing, the risk of serious illness and death is almost entirely in two groups of people, those with immune compromise and those that have not been vaccinated. It's really important to get the vaccine, even though it is not fully protective against infection.
2: And I think that's something, Eric, we've talked about before and we've seen in many of the reports published in our pages, are how different types of immunity-inducing events, such as boosting and natural infection on top of vaccine-induced immunity, can further decrease risk. But we have to always look at the absolute versus the relative. And we've discussed that before here, and I think it's worth highlighting because though we want to improve health at every step, A relative benefit isn't always as informative as understanding the absolute numbers. And early on in the pandemic, the absolute numbers were staggering, which is why a lot of these therapies, including vaccines, were able to make such a big difference. We need to continue
0: to find ways to improve our therapies. So last week we talked about what might be behind the variability in case rates that we're seeing right now, and both of you cited the difference in background infection rates. So That raises a question that you've been circling around. Would people be better off having been infected to protect them against subsequent disease?
1: That's not an easy question to answer. So yes, people who were infected are less likely to develop severe infection. However, in order to get that protection, you have to get infected and you run the risk of at least moderate disease if you're already vaccinated. Back in the day, people used to have chicken pox parties where they would expose their children deliberately to chicken pox so they could get this rather mild disease rather than getting it when they got older and it posed a real risk to them. But COVID isn't an extremely mild disease like chickenpox in young children. And I don't think that we are at the COVID party level quite yet.
2: To some degree, Eric, we've been having a very bad COVID party for a year or two and the hope that it is becoming milder is terrific and encouraging. But we still need to be cautious. As mask mandates go away, as variants that are even more transmissible continue to emerge, we have to cautiously observe the illnesses that ongoing transmission can cause. Fortunately, it doesn't seem quite as severe in those who have prior immunity. But I do want to have a couple of words of caution. We have to remember that the reason I'm vaccinated and wearing a mask is not just to protect me, it's to protect the vulnerable people I come into contact with. And so one needs to think carefully about how we prevent transmission to others who may not handle it so well. And that becomes complicated in how we think about our prevention strategies because it's more than just the individual's health.
1: Let me enlarge on that just a little, Lindsay, because it's certainly true that you put your immunocompromised and elderly relatives or housemates at risk when you get infected. Since a lot of our audience is likely to be physicians, remember that as a physician, you're seeing groups of people who are disproportionately at high risk. And so I think it is important for, Physicians, in particular, to be taking precautions, even if they're vaccinated, because of their risk of injuring
2: others. And I think, Eric, that's why the healthcare settings often have stricter guidelines, because our infection control and public health colleagues don't want COVID and other viruses spread to our patients, particularly the ones who can handle it least well. And so I think it's important for all of us to remember that.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.